0: I don't know if you've ever been on a, a mission trip or any kind of trip outside of the country, uh, but one of my first mission trips was, was what we're going to see this morning with the Jesus sending out the 12 disciples, two by two. Uh, and so my first time to Haiti, my, the, the time that I went to Haiti, I was there for about two and a half weeks or so, um, it was just me and another guy. There wasn't like, you know, if you've ever been on a mission trip, maybe some of you grew up in the church and maybe your teens or some like teenage years, you maybe went on like my wife did many mission trips through the teenage years. You're kind of going with a collective group. You're all wearing the same t-shirt, you know, all those kind of things. You're like, yep, there's the church group <laughs> in the airport wearing the yellow, bright yellow shirts uh, saying they love Jesus and we're going to the light of the world or something, you know, whatever it is normally said. Um, but uh, on this trip, it was just me and this other guy. And I had, I'm not like a world traveler i had barely been on i mean i think my first flight on a on an airplane that's typically what you do when you're flying is get on an actual airplane to fly so the first time i was on an airplane uh, was uh, i think i was 18 years old and so the first time i'd gotten on an airplane so and then on this trip i think i'd have been maybe 22 21 somewhere in there um, so I'm not like this world traveler. I've not been all over the world. This is like kind of new to me. And so this trip is going into Haiti. Haiti at the time, and as it still is, is, is very tense. I mean, there's a lot of tense, uh, tense uh, politics going on. There's a lot of uh, chaos. There's, I mean, it's a, it's a, I would say, as I've been there, it's a pretty dark uh, country as well. It shares an island uh, with the Dominican Republic. And we went into the Dominican Republic and went th- across the border there. But I remember just the two of us. I mean, I was nervous. I, I, I won't lie. I was nervous because I was flying. I wasn't used to flying, so that part made me nervous already. And then just getting there and landing, and it's just the two of us. And I'm like, I don't know Creole. I don't know. Uh, I don't know Spanish as well as we're landing in the Dominican. I mean, it's like I took these class. took. Spanish in high school, but I did not pay attention that well uh, to know it that well. And so, um, so I go, and I'm, I'm super nervous. There's just the two of us. There's not like the collective group to kind of depend on. And as we're as we're going, I just I remember like, man, I'm relying on him because he had been before. But what I learned on that trip was there was a lot of reliance on God that needed to take part in my heart. Um, whether it was when we were crossing in the UN guard, and it was like, I mean chaos of people pushing across the border when we were leaving Haiti to go back into the Dominican for our flight back and there was just all these people coming and it was like this mass crowd and they're all pushing and the UN workers are all and this border patrol people I guess or whatever are there and they've got their like M16s and stuff and I'm I'm just terrified and I'm getting pushed and pushed and all of a sudden I get pushed into one of these UN workers I'm like, oh no. And she like pushes me back with her M16. I'm like, oh, it wasn't me. It was them. I'm like, please like, I, no, no, hands up. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I'm not sure. I just like, don't hurt me. Um, but I remember just being really, really nervous. And then when we went in, it wasn't like we had like, oh, we're staying with missionaries. We weren't staying in a missionary compound. We were just living among the people and we stayed in this this random person's house for the, the two weeks we were there. We just kind of relied on them to, to to help us and to, to give us food and then show us where to go and all these things. And we were interviewing uh, children who were, uh, we were trying to get into a program to get them adopted and also sponsored um, uh, for their care for their, and to get them into an orphanage that we had, uh, were building at the time there. And I just remember on this trip because it was just the two of us being super nervous and worrying about like, what is this? Or like, is this person understanding me or that? And I can't help but think, when I think of this story, when I read it, I can't, I kept, I keep wondering what was going through the disciples' Heads, When Jesus asked them, all right, you're going to now go. The two of you are going and you're heading out on your journey. And here's what you're going to do. I want you to go and preach the gospel. You're going to preach repentance and you're going to heal the sick. You're going to cast out demons in my name. I'm going to give you authority to do these things. And like, I mean, it was nice, right? Have you ever been with someone who's like, who knows what they're doing when they're traveling or something like that? You're like, all right, sweet. We'll just follow your lead. Like, you tell us what to do, you do all your stuff, and we'll just be kind of behind you and be like, yeah, that's good. Give applause and all those things. I'm sure that's kind of what the disciples had been doing up until this point. They're, they have been called, Jesus said, if you remember, we looked at this in Mark 1, I mean, he calls them out, and he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And they start to follow him. They're learning from Jesus. They're watching Jesus cast out demons. They're like, that's crazy. He cast out a demon. He heals the disease. He heals people of disease. He calms the storm, and they're like, who is this? Jesus. They're watched all this time, and now it's their turn. Now I'm going to send you. Not only, not, It's not just my job. I want you to join me in this mission. And what we see is these disciples being called out, and all right, you're going to join me in being actively a part of bringing the kingdom of God to this world. You're going to be actively a part of this, and I want you to join me in my mission. I want you to see what happens here as... As Mark is giving us this picture of what this is going to look like. And so if you have a Bible, I'm going to read uh, starting in verse 7. And we're going to cover all the way to verse 30 this morning. It says this in verse 7, Mark chapter 6. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts. But to wear sandals I mean, it's pretty, pretty incredible so far. I mean, like, I mean, can you imagine? You're the disciples. You've watched Jesus do these things, and now you're going to participate in doing these things. His message was a message of repentance. And as we look first at this, the mission of the Twelve, I want you to notice just a few things from this section here as we walk through this, this passage this morning. Notice first that through this mission of the Twelve, that authority was given. Notice what it says here. It says, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. First of all, how can Jesus give authority to these people to cast out demons? Who can give this kind of authority? Who can give this kind of authority to say, you, on my behalf, as as my uh, ambassador, you're going to go ahead of me and you're going to actually cast out demons? You're going to touch people or tell someone to be healed, and they will be healed. How do they get this power? Is this power something that comes through the, the, the you know, is it like, is it like transferred? Is it like, is it like from a distance, you know, Jesus knows they're about to do it, and so Jesus is like, all right, heal this person, because I see that, that John is trying to heal someone now. Like, how does this work? No, what we see is this authority comes from Jesus, the same authority that we see at the end of Matthew 28. We see the Great Commission, the commission that's for all of us, all people who follow Jesus. They're called to make disciples. But first, it starts with what? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Then he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You see, we go in his authority. We go with his backing. I don't know if if that's one of your joys or not, but like I remember it's like when you're kind of lower on the uh, totem pole in work or something like that. But like someone who's a boss tells you something to do and that you're go and you walk in and you're like, hey, all right, guys, we got to do this and that and this. And they're looking at you like, who are you and who gives you the authority to tell us what to do? Well, the boss told, us, told me to do this. It's something about having that authority behind you to say something. And here, that authority is going with them. Maybe they're nervous. They're, they're, they're I would assume, extremely nervous. They're like, all right, now, and you're breaking us up, Jesus? Only going to be two of us, not the twelve? But sure enough, they go. They go with an authority behind them. And Jesus has this authority, and he gives it to him. It's another sign of his deity. Also, notice what else on their mission that they need to do. They, they have to depend on God. Notice what it says. Again, he says he charged them to take nothing for their journey. Now, I remember when I went on my little journey to Haiti, I was taking like... I'm like, I don't know what the food's going to be like. I'm like, pack me full of snacks and all kinds of things. I'm like, give me some peanut butter and some crackers, and I think I'll be able to survive two weeks. (laughs) And so, sure enough, I'm packing these kind of things. I'm grabbing a pillow. I'm changing all these different clothing. Here, though, he says he charged them to take nothing for their journey except only a few things, a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. So they're only to have one of their tunics. So they're literally to go, and it's a picture of faith, that they're needing to not just talk about faith, they need to live out that faith. So if they're going to call people to repentance and put their faith in Jesus, they're going to show it through their lives. Sounds kind of similar, I would say, to what we should be looking like. What do we model to our next-door neighbor, to our friends, to co-workers... What evidence is there of our reliance on the Lord? I think that moves in my heart because I think that's a question I ask myself often is, do I really, truly, actually rely on God? Because I live in America, we live among affluence, we have wealth, we have things, we have stuff, our needs are mostly met. But oftentimes, we look and we think, man, I, don't, I, I need more or I want more. But here's the question is, are we actually truly, really living out the gospel and living out a reliance on the Lord? Or do we go up before the Lord? Are we going ahead of Him? And we're, you know what, well, I can take care of myself. I can do these things. Here, as they go to share the good news of the kingdom of God, to repent and to believe in the gospel, They're to go with a picture of that, of we're relying on the Lord for our help. We're going to go to your town and we're going to spread the gospel and we'll see what happens. We'll see if someone will take us in and provide. We're going to trust God to take care of us. And so they needed to, they have this authority given to them. They have to depend on God. But notice what they're to do. What are they to do, actually? It says, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So what is he saying here? It's a picture of, for one, I think it's interesting. Sending to is also like an eyewitness. So when you're declaring and you're casting out a judgment, like, hey, repent or else, or you need to be repenting of sin, th- this sin or that sin, and you be trusting in God alone. You need to be repenting of your idolatry, repenting of these things. Here's this witness with you, the two people declaring this, and so it's as if it's a testimony that would have been given in court. And so, again, if these people do not respond, what he says to do is this, is, all right, if these people will not receive you or your message, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. This is a picture that was common in the day of, 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 like, ridding yourself of these people. Okay, fine. I think that sounds a little different than what we would maybe assume when we're calling people here, as He's calling these people to repent. We give them the response. Give them the opportunity to repent. Give them the gospel. Give them the good news. They're to declare these things, but if they will not listen, they're to, they move on. I do think that is fascinating to see in this passage. But what are they to do? What's their message? Look at verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Their their main mission was to proclaim repentance. Listen, turn from your sin. Turn away from your selfishness and your self-righteousness and turn to the living God. This was the message that they were to proclaim. What are they to do to confirm that message? This would have been a confirming. They would have been a both and. Verse 13, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. They're doing these things, and it's confirming the authority that's behind them, Jesus, and the power that He has. And it's a, a confirming of their testimony, the, the message they're proclaiming, by showing these signs to confirm. It's what we see in the book of Acts, over and over again. We see this the confirming of the message of um, the gospel that was being proclaimed from town to town and village as the gospel is spreading and spreading and spreading. You would see these, these signs and wonders being done, and it was a confirming of the authenticity of the message at that time, as this was new. We didn't have all of Scripture yet. The Gospels are proclaiming, and they're telling the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and as Paul is writing to churches. These are all becoming what we have as our canon of Scripture, the whole of Scripture. They didn't have that yet, and so this was a, way, a means and a way to affirm and to um, declare their message as true power behind it. And so they're to go. And so Mark here, as he tells us about this mission of the twelve, here's their mission. And we're going to get to the end of that mission. If you look at verse 30, we'll skip first here. Look at verse 30. And it says, and the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. I wonder what that was like. They come back home, and they're like, Jesus, can you believe it? We actually did heal someone. Like, you told us to go do this, and we, and we did. And, and this person responded, and this person, they, they, I, mean, I can imagine like they're kind of gathering together, and it's like this retelling of all their stories. Again, going on mission trips, I remember when you come home, one of the difficulties of that was coming home to people who had never been there. And you come and you tell them all the things and they're looking at you like, yeah, that's great. That's really cool. No, but you don't understand. It was this and this and that. And you're like, but you didn't smell the smells that I was smelling. You didn't touch the people that I was getting to be with. You didn't live it. And, they, and so they don't quite fully grasp it. But these guys, they all spread out and they're coming together and they're just sharing all their stories. I can imagine how wonderful that was. But in the midst of these, this story of Jesus sending the twelve in their mission to call people to repentance, what we see next is a picture of unrepentance. We see a, a really a brutal picture. It's a picture that's not pretty. It's, not, it's the picture of the death of John the Baptist. But I would say the death of John the Baptist isn't what's so ugly about this passage. What's ugly is actually the people and the characters that lead to his death. It's tragic. But it's a picture, I would say, and I would argue it's a picture of unrepentance. And I want us to look at the story. It's, it may be confusing if you first read it because <clears throat> he starts with telling us, and it sounds confusing. So we're going to actually uh, skip down a little bit and we'll come back to that in just a second. But, <coughs> excuse me, if you look at, at, at verse, we'll just go to verse 17. So it says, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? It brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now, that's it's really dark. It's really, it's really tragic as well. And so, as, as Mark is trying to tell this story, it's interesting that when you're reading the book of Mark, if you, and I would encourage you at some point, maybe during this series, maybe multi, um, several times to do it, is just read from, the, like, read from the very beginning and read it all in like one sitting. Like, give yourself about an hour or 30, you know, 40 minutes or so and just read straight through the whole book. It's only 16 chapters. It'll help you see a picture and you'll see things that maybe you don't see when you're just studying it one verse at a time or looking at a little chapter here and a little chapter there. But to just read, and I would encourage you, that's a, I would say a really good way of reading Scripture is, is every once in a while just like, all right, I'm going to leave myself plenty of time and I'm going to read a whole book. I'm going to read it all together just at once. Because you'll see things that you don't see as you study it slowly. And, and, and in this story, what you'll see is as you read the book of Mark, it's all about Jesus, right? But it's interesting that only two times and only twice does he do this that he really spends more time talking about another person. And that other person is John the Baptist. We see it at the beginning in chapter one, and then we again see it here. The rest of the time it's about Jesus and his stories of Jesus and his healings and all these things. And so it's interesting that he would spend so much time telling this story. And it's a story I think that helps us understand a lot about repentance. Because if you remember, the words of John the Baptist, if you look at look with me, look at Mark chapter 1. As, as, as Mark chapter 1 comes in. We get John appearing in verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of what? Of repentance. He's calling the people to repent, turn, stop living for yourself. Stop looking to yourself and stop looking to other things to bring you satisfaction and bring you hope and, and, and joy in this life. Turn from those things and turn to the one who's coming, the Messiah, the anointed one. Here he comes. He's calling the people to prepare for Jesus' coming. Notice when Jesus shows up. So Jesus in chapter 1 and look at verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, so we get a picture of his arrest already there, verse 14. John, the Baptist, was arrested, but Jesus came into. This is the beginning of his public ministry. What is the first words coming out of Jesus' mouth? What is he going to do? What's he calling the people to do? He says this, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. What are you to do? Repent and believe the gospel. Now, looking at our passage today, what is the disciples' job as they go on this mission? What are they to to do? What are they to say? What are they to go about doing? And they're to be doing the ministry of what God has called them to do. And they're to repent, call people to repentance. And so they went, verse 12, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. So we get John the Baptist. What's John the Baptist going to do? How is he going to treat Herod? How is, what is he going to do with him? And what is he going to do? He's going to call him to repent. Now, what is he calling him to repent of? Well, I think that helped. We need to know who these people are. One is Herod the Great. So first, Herod the Great... So there's a lot of Herods in the Bible, and so it can be a little confusing. There was a lot of Herods in history. So, Herod the Great was the Herod that was during the birth of Jesus. So he's the the, the Herod. Um, Herod the Great was the one who is the one who wanted all the babies and, and made a decree to kill all the babies that were like under two or so to try to find to make sure to to try to kill Jesus when he was hearing the word from the wise men. If you remember the story, well, Herod the Great had a lot of children, uh, and beca- with having a lot of children, he had a lot of wives. Yeah, about ten wives is, is from history that we know of. And one of his sons had a daughter named Herodias. So Herod the Great had a son, and one of his sons had Herodias, the girl that we see, the, the woman that we find in this story. And so Herodias is this woman. And so Herodias had married... Now, this is weird. This is kind of the weird part. Is So she married her, one of her uncles. So, so one of Herod's children married a niece. Is that following along now? So Philip was one of those who married Herodias. Well, Herod Antipas is the Herod we have in our story here today. Herod Antipas, he took Herodias from his brother and married her for himself. Because basically uh, with Herod the Great, he had these four sons and these four sons became like tetrarchs. They had different regions. There was four of them and they had four different regions that they were overseeing uh, for Rome. And so, Herod Antipas was one of the Herods overseeing um, uh, Galilee and Perea. And so, John the Baptist, you know, Jesus calling us to call, call people to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. Sure enough, he hears of the, what Herod has done, that Herod has done. He's broken the law. And now you would be like, well, why would he hold the law against Herod? Why would the law of Moses? Why would he hold the law of Moses against someone who's not a Jew? Well, was thought in that day is if you were a herder, if you were a leader of a of a, like of a colonial kind of area, you've kind of over you're leading and overseeing a people group like the Jews at this time who was still allowed to worship and all those things, uh, you would you would naturally be keen to those things and you would try to abstain from those things for, on their behalf, and so knowing this, he had. Uh, John the Baptist hears of this, and he's going to call Herod to repent and saying, listen, this is not right. You shouldn't have taken, for one, you're, you're committing adultery. You have, you've taken your brother's wife, which is, uh, which is also your niece, which is weird. Both of them married their niece, which is also weird as well. But both of these things, and Herod is like, no, no, no. And he had the boldness to call him out and say, you need to repent. And that's what led Herodias to despising him, as we see Verse 19, and Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But what is so fascinating about this story? It's tragic is what we see from Herod. It's, it's, it's confusing. Because it says in verse 20, for Herod feared John. Why did he fear John? Well, he feared John because he believed him to be a holy man. He believed him to be a righteous man, a good man and holy. And so he, he feared him. He maybe feared what people would do, maybe the insurrection and all those kind of things possibly. But ultimately it tells us that he, that he feared this man. But here's what's interesting. He, <clears throat> he fears him knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. How did he keep him safe? He's keeping him from his wife. So he puts him in prison. He puts him away in a prison cell to protect him because he knew Herodias wants him dead. And so sure enough, he does this. But it's interesting. While he has him in prison, notice what it says. When he heard him, this is Herod speaking, when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. I don't know if that does things for you. It makes me ask questions. I, I read that and I go like, well, what would lead him to a man who calls you and says, you are in sin, Herod? You have married someone that you took your brother's wife This is wrong, and this man is, to your face, calling you out, and yet you're like, I would hear him speak, and I just think, man, it brings joy. He hears him gladly. And I I don't know, for you, I ask those questions, I go like, well, why? Why would he experience this? And, And I think it was he was conflicted. He understood the message, and he probably understood the truth of the message, but yet he still wanted what he wanted. It's like, you know, a lot of people do that, right? They want both. They want the things of this world, but they also want God. We want both, and we want to have both. But God declares, I am the Lord God. I and only I shall you serve. You don't serve money. You don't serve things. You don't don't pursue pleasures outside of me. I give those things to you as a gift. And yet Herod here wants both. He's torn. He's conflicted about John. He thought he was a holy man, but knew his wife hated him, so he was in some ways trying to protect John from his wife. And he would listen and intently. He was torn. And Herodias was just waiting for the right opportunity. And so it tells us Herod has this birthday party. It tells us in verse 21, But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So it's like it's the, the A-listers are all coming together for Herod's party. It's like the um, the Kardashians, I guess it's the Herodians, you know, come in and everyone wants to know like, and be a part of this party and see and observe and do these things. And so he has this great party and they're going to have this banquet. All the military commanders, all the leading men of Galilee and in the area come for this party and they're having a great time. And for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod. I I don't understand this at all because I'm like, man, I don't know how this, like what's worse that This man is enjoying that his daughter is dancing in front of all of these men. And I'm sure it's not just, she's just dancing, like doing some two-step or whatever. I don't know dancing, so never mind. I'll just keep my mouth shut. Um, But like, I'm sure this is probably a picture of, of what you would think somewhere, like in places you shouldn't be late in the middle of the night. Is the picture here that she is just dancing before these men? They're all have been drunk. They're all they're all having a great time. They're having a party, and they're watching. And, and Can you imagine? You're Herod, and this is your daughter in front of all these people dancing, and you're watching as the men around you are gawking after her and looking after her. And yet, here it tells us that Herod himself was as well. It's an ugly picture of sin. It's a brutal picture of what the effects of sin do to people. And so she pleased Herod and his guest, so much so that the king made a foolish response and comment. And it says, And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, which he couldn't even do. He didn't have this kind of authority. Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. He couldn't really do that. But gives it out anyways. And seizing the opportunity, Herodias goes to her mother and says, I think we've got the opportunity. What should I ask? Ask him for Herod's head. What's Herod going to do? He, he believes this is a holy man. He believes he's righteous. He even seems like he kind of likes him. He's interested in his teaching, even though he's called him out and repent, call him to repent, yet he still likes it. What's he going to do? We've already read it, so I know you know what he does, but I want you to see it. And the king, verse 26, was exceedingly sorry. He was sorry, but not sorry enough. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. You see, he feared, as one commentator said, he feared losing face with his guests more than he feared John losing his head. How tragic. He was more concerned about his appearance, how people viewed him, how he was accepted than what was right. Because I think deep down, Herod knew what was right. He knew Her- He knew John the Baptist wasn't wrong. He knew he was right. He knew what he had done was wrong. Herod did. He, I think I, I genuinely believe, deep down, probably in his heart, he knew these things to be true. That's why he felt sorrow. That's why he enjoyed and he was confused, because he's conflicted. And maybe, maybe at some point in your life you've been there before, right, where you know the truth. Maybe you've had a friend speak into an area of your life, or you've had someone speak into an area. Or maybe the first time you heard the gospel, you're like, ah, man, I don't know about this. Like, that's, that's, that's a little bit much. That's too much for me. But you're like, man, I, I see what you're saying, but I don't know if I can do that. I think mean, that's exactly what Herod's doing. Herod, Herod knows what's right and what's wrong. He knows that John is right in calling him out, but yet here he is in front of, his, in front of all of his friends, in front of all of his people. He's got to hold face. He's got he's to do what, his, what he said. He's got to keep his word in this way, as if he couldn't really change his word if he wanted to. You see, Herod had a high view of Jesus and John the Baptist. In fact, Verse 16, Herod thinks Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. I, wanna, I want you to I wanna go back there for a second. Look at verse 14. King Herod, which I didn't read earlier. King Herod, because this is why this story is a little confusing. It tells you this, and then it tells us the story. So verse 14, King Herod heard of this. What was he hearing of? That goes back to the mission of the disciples, the call for repentance. That's the connection to our story. So the disciples are going about two by two from town to town claiming repentance. Herod is getting word of this happening in the the surrounding areas. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. See, he's probably feeling the guilt as well. He's feeling the weightiness of that. And now, and, 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 and you have to understand, when, when they think of raised from the dead, they don't think of like Jesus' raising from the dead, as in a bodily resurrection. He's probably thinking of like a spirit man type thing, and like this spirit man thing is, is going to, like, you know, like if you're watching uh, A Christmas Carol, I think it is, A Christmas Story, which one, whatever the one woman is with the Christmas ghost, Christmas Carol, thinks. Yes, exactly. That's to, two totally different stories. <laughs> yes, I know that's true. Um... But it's kind of like that picture of maybe he's worried about he's being haunted by John the Baptist is going to come back and what's he going to do to me? I couldn't even, like I killed him and maybe maybe, maybe he's happy about that as well too because he's so conflicted. But the point is he can't turn from his sin. He is unwilling to turn from his sin. He, he knows the truth and, and this is what I want to encourage you with. There's things probably in your life that you know is wrong but yet for some reason you're not turning from it. And I want to give you, I want to give you some, some help in this area. And Thomas Watson, uh, I, I appreciate a lot of the Puritan preachers of the day in the 1600s. And Thomas Watson, uh, Thomas Watson uh, who was an English Puritan in the 1600s, he wrote uh, on repentance, kind of this treatise on it. And he's quoted as saying, I think we have this on the screen, is repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Let me say that again. Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. For one, it's a grace in and of itself that God would even allow you the opportunity to repent and turn from your sins. God revealing these things to you. Listen, this was a moment of grace for Herod. God didn't leave Herod to his own devices. He didn't leave him there. No, he sent John the Baptist to him. And John the Baptist called him to repentance. When these two-by-two disciples go to the, to the surrounding areas, that is God's grace to the surrounding areas to hear the gospel. Now the ball is in the court of the person. Are they going to respond to this call of repentance? God is being gracious to him. He's opening the, the door for them to respond and receive this gift. Thomas Watson is saying repentance is a gift. It's a grace of God's Spirit, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Meaning, you respond to it. You see what's going on. And you would even see that a little bit here. There's the sorrow aspect. There's this this conflicting feelings that Herod is experiencing. But yet, the last part of what Thomas Watson is saying is, is, is absent not visibly reformed. We actually see the opposite. He's having this dinner party and he's having a great time enjoying his daughter dancing in front of him and his guests. And Watson, as as he gives this quote, he also gives six steps. And I want to put these on the screen so you can help as well and, and see this. And I think they're an excellent resource for us to understand the steps really of true repentance. They're short, except really the last one. First is this. It's First, I would say that in true repentance is you, there's the sight of sin. Like, you see it. You're exposed to sin. Like we were saying with Herod, Herod was exposed to his sin. His his sin was brought to light. For some, like at an early age, right? I mean, like your children, yes, at an early, early age, you see their sinfulness, (laughs) You see it in their in their whining and complaining. You see it in their wanting not to share and all those things. If we were to go downstairs, we would see a bunch of sinners. Like, I know that your children and I just offended you, but my kids are down there too um, as well. And you're like, well that's great, Eric. You're offending your children too. So but point being is we look and you can tell, like we're self-centered. You quickly see it at an early age. Uh, you see this aspect. But it takes a, a while for a child to understand that they are actually sinning. They, they, it takes some time, there may be a couple years, a few, several years before they understand, I've sinned. Like I am actively doing something that is wrong. And he's saying the steps start with first just a sight of sin, an, of knowing that you've sinned. Second is because you've sinned, there's a sorrow for sin, a sorrow for sin. I like uh, 2 Corinthians um, explanation of sorrow. Uh, I think it's a really helpful guide on godly sorrow. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verse 10, we get a picture of this. <clears throat> <He> says, <clears throat> Paul says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Notice what he says, though. Worldly, whereas worldly grief produces death. So he's saying there's a difference between just sorrow in general. Because we are seeing that Herod had sorrow. He felt sorrow over what had happened to John and what, had, what he had caused John. It wasn't like this just, oh man, this like unfortunate, series of unfortunate events. No, you chose to have this man killed. And you feel sorrow, but that sorrow is not a godly sorrow. It's, it's a worldly sorrow that is going to ultimately lead to Herod's death, an eternal death and separation from God. But the first, that second step, is, is, as Thomas Watson is saying, is there's sight of sin, there's sorrow for sin, and the next along that journey of repentance is confession of sin. What does that mean? What does it mean to confess? What are you doing when you're confessing sin? You're, you're admitting it. You are recognizing, I have sinned, and you're owning it. You've probably had to do that if you've ever been in a relationship of any kind. Eventually, you've broken the relationship. You've done something wrong. And eventually, you have to own that I messed up. I shouldn't have spoken that way to you. Is a phrase that can become familiar in our homes if you're married. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. Or I did mean to do that. And you're like, nope, nope. Now you're digging a grave for yourself. Just own it, right? You confess it. Confess your sins. Admit wrong. Number four, he says, and the next step is shame for sin. Shame. What is that? What does this shame mean? I like Ezra 9 6. Ezra 9 6 says, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift blush to lift my face to you. It's like i I'm not, you you feel the shame. You feel the weight and like the undeservingness of the other person especially when it comes to God, you start to feel the weight of your sin and you feel the shame of that. That is a step in the process. And so Ezra 9, 6 says, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities, he's talking about collectively too, for the people of God, as if you've read Ezra before, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. He's, <clears throat> Ezra is recognizing for the people of Israel, our sin is ever before us. We're so consumed, oh, we're in over our heads. You feel the shame of that. I'm, I'm even, you ever felt that right? Like, I feel ashamed to even go to you because of, I've, I've messed up so greatly. You feel, that, you feel that tension in a relationship? That's what he's saying here. Number five is this, is hatred. It's a hatred of sin. You hate it. You're intolerant of sin. You despise it. You loathe it. I can give you a bunch of different words for, for hatred, but the point is, you just you, the, the, it just angers you. Like not just that an anger that you got caught. That's what after, often happens. You, you get angry over the, those things. But are you actually angry at sin? The sin of your heart. Are you? Is is that in the process for you? As as he says, number five is is hatred of sin. And number six. Would say is the one that most of us are familiar with when it comes to repentance is turning from sin and returning to the Lord if you're a follower of Jesus. is turning from your sin, saying, All right, I'm gonna, I'm going away from it. I'm not going back to this. But I like Martin Luther and what Martin Luther said um, about this. I'm gonna paraphrase him because I don't have it in my notes today, but um, Martin Luther I think is the. At least the person that I first heard it from. I've quoted it and said it over the years, but I believe the mark of a Christian is they live a life of repentance. That the Christian's life is marked by repentance. It's not just, all right, I've turned once. No, I mean, you're a sinner, right? Like, you're going to mess up again. What are you going to do? You're going to... You see the sin... You feel sorrow over your sin. You confess your sin. You're owning it. You feel the shame. You feel the separation that's caused between you and God. And so you begin to hate it because you love God more than you love the sin. And so you begin to hate this thing because it's in the way of the thing that you love, not the thing you love, God that you love. And so the sin becomes a a hatred in you. And what does it lead to? And I hope it leads you to, to turn from sin and back to God. You see, this is a picture of repentance, but it's not the picture that we see with Herod. I think that's the question for us this morning. How, can, how are we to respond to our sin? How are we to respond to this mission that the disciples were sent on to declare and proclaim the gospel and to call people to turn from their sins, to repent? I believe, for one, is us is to recognize and pay attention to the sin in your heart. See it for what it is, is absolute treason against the holy God. It's not just lighthearted. It's not just a little white lie. No, it is treason. You've gone against the holy God. We're going to sing of his holiness in a, in a few minutes. We're going to observe communion together in a, a few minutes. But first, what I would encourage you this morning is to, if there is known sin in your life, to walk, walk, start walking through these steps through Scripture. Walk through these steps. Call out. Own it. Confess it. Admit it for what it is. There's no excuses here. It is, I have sinned against God. Maybe it's as great as Herod's, or maybe it's a lot lighter, but it doesn't matter where on the spectrum of of sin and its ratings and all those things. All sin is, is, completely, utterly separates us from a holy God. But that's the beauty of Jesus. It's the beauty, ultimately, of this story and I think there's a few takeaways from this story that can really help us as well, not only just on the repentance side, but also just in general. One is this. If like You're living on mission. First of all, this is our mission. We join the disciples on this mission of calling people to put their faith and trust in Jesus, to repent of their sins and put their trust in Jesus. Listen, here's the reality is God will give you everything you need to serve Him. God has given you Himself. He promises His presence with you in the Great Commission. God will give you everything you need. To serve him, another takeaway: understand that the cost—the cost of following Jesus. John the Baptist, holy man, righteous man, also beheaded. I can't, I can't, I can't just soften that and make that nice and easy for you. That life's just going to be great. No, life is hard following Jesus. It is a cost that is—it is an extreme cost. It costs you your life. I think of many, many people who've given their life to the cause of Christ. If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you see all the faithful men and women over the years and centuries who stood against oppression and stood against just terrible, awful leaders among them and and dictators and horrible dictators, and yet they stood for their faith and they lost their lives for the, the cost or for the gospel, for the sake of the gospel. You see, we have to understand the cost of following Jesus. Jesus says, We haven't even looked at it yet, but he's going to call people. He says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And he says, there's a key word. I just left it out that time is daily. It's every day counting the cost. And recognizing my own sinfulness and my need of grace and to go to the Lord for help. He is, wants to lavish that help on you. He's given you the authority. If you're a follower of His, you can do that. Number three, another takeaway, and this is where I want <clears throat> to land and end this, this, this morning, is ultimately in this story, John the, <clears throat> excuse me, John the Baptist foreshadows Jesus in many ways. In Mark 1, John is setting the stage for Jesus, preparing the way, calling the people to repent. Jesus comes, and some of the first words out of his mouth that I was saying earlier are repentance. But he's preparing the way. He's this forerunner. And it's the same message. And here in our passage this morning, both John and Jesus are killed by a politician who questioned their innocence. Herod knew he was innocent. What we're going to see is Jesus. As so we get fast forward to Pilate and others, they 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 know he's innocent and they, they want to wash their hands of this. Like uh, he is a holy man, like he doesn't do anything wrong. But what does he do? He caves to the pressure of the people. That's exactly what we see with John. That's what we're going to see. With Jesus and his death. Both Jesus and John's deaths were carried out through manipulation. Herodias is manipulating and used an opportunity to get what she wanted John's head on a platter. The Pharisees are going to use manipulation and and use accusations and false accusations and made up accusations to get Jesus on the cross. Both were innocent victims. But as Jason Meyer in his commentary on Mark says, this has stood out with me over the past few weeks and I read it several weeks ago. He says, there's one amazing difference between these two stories. He says, John died because of the sin of others. Jesus died for the sin of others. You see, John died because of the sinfulness of Herod and Herodias and them wanting him dead. But Jesus is going to come and he's going to die willingly lay his life down for the sin of others. See, this is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came and he's the only way that we can even repent of our sins is because there's a savior who's willing to cancel the debt. You see, repentance, there's a cost in our sin and that cost is weighty. It's weightier than we ever would have imagined. The cost of sin is death. Eternal death, eternal separation from this holy God. He's too holy and we're too unholy to be in his presence. And our sin creates a gap that is just insurmountable on effort. You will never earn God's grace. You will never earn God's goodness. It is a gift given to us. And the gift is Jesus laying his life down willingly for the sake of ours. This is the gospel. You see, Jesus came to save life through his sacrificial death. Herod didn't think he needed to repent and believe in Jesus. My question for you this morning is, do you, do you really believe that he is the only way? Is there sin in your life that you're still just caught up in? Will you repent? Use this as a guide this morning from Thomas Watson as a guide for you through that journey of that. Seek scripture, get to know Jesus, and as you expose yourself to who Jesus is, you'll respond like I was saying earlier, you'll respond very similarly to Ezra, where I want to read it again. Ezra 9, 6. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. Why? Because my sin and our sin collectively before you. We are so unworthy. We're so unholy. We don't deserve. We need mercy. And what does he cry out? He says, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. We're covered. We're consumed by it. And our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. So what do they need? They need mercy. They need grace. And this is the beauty of the gospel is God gives it. And he wants to give it. But it's only received by faith and repenting of your sins and turning by faith to him. So will you, in every area of your life. Man, I, I, I stand here and I do not want you to think that I am Talking directly to you. I, I feel like I'm talking to myself in many ways. But that's why I need the gospel. I don't mean like, hey, you might not be a believer out there, you need the gospel. No, I need it as your pastor, as a follower of Jesus. I need his gospel daily. I need the reminder that Jesus has paid the price for my sin. I need to turn from my sin daily and live for him. I need his grace every moment of every day to live this life for him, to finish well. That's my hope for you. That's my hope for you, whether you're like, who is this Jesus? I don't know who you're even talking about. I'm confused. Can we talk more? That would be my joy. Would you do that? Would talk more? Or for some of you that have walked with Jesus longer than I have, I want you to see that their sin is always crouching at the door. It is, the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. And he wants to destroy your life and he wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy you, yourself, everything about you. He is after you. And that is why we need grace. And that's why we turn from sin and put our trust in Jesus. This is why we need him. And so I want to call you. And I want to challenge you. And here's the great thing is we're, we're going to observe communion together here in just a few minutes. But I want to encourage you, like, don't take this... Lightly, don't if like like listen. If there is unconfessed sin in your life, don't feel the pressure to come up here. And I don't even. I wish that we didn't have to actually come up here because I don't want like you to feel awkward of like you know I'm not feeling like I should. But then it's like is everyone looking at me? Um, if everyone could just close your eyes as you walk up here, that'd be great. But I know that's impossible and all those things. But that's why I want to spread it out. Like come when you're ready, and then go back and sit down. Like and don't worry about what people are thinking and looking at you or whatever. Like if there is. Areas of your life where you're like, I'm not walking with the Lord right now. I don't think I should, I should observe this this morning. Because there's some warnings in Scripture that it is for the believer. It's for the follower of Jesus who has professed faith in Christ and is living for Him. But it's a beautiful thing to do because it's a reminder. It's a, a memorial. It's a, a reminding ourselves. And, and we're called to do this in remembrance of what Jesus has done. That His blood was poured out. For the forgiveness of sins. And so when we drink of the cup, we're reminding ourselves of the cost of our salvation, reminding ourselves of the blood that was poured out. And when we take the bread and we eat the bread, what we're doing is reminding ourselves of the the suffering of Christ, that his body was broken for you. And so when you break bread, I would encourage you as you break bread at home to make yourself and remind yourself of the cost of my salvation that My sin is what put him on the cross. The song that we sang earlier, Man of Sorrows, this is talking about Jesus, the man of sorrows. He's the one who was treated and despised by men. It's the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. The picture of him brutally murdered on a cross, this is the man of sorrows. And he's doing that all because of love for you and for me. And so we observe these things together and do this in remembrance of him. I want to give you one quote. I'm going to pray. And then I want to, when you give you an opportunity, just in your seats, pray as well. Maybe that's just go to the Lord and repent of sin. Turn. And put your trust in Him. Maybe it's examine Examine yourself, as Scripture tells us. Examine my heart. Is there a wayward, like the psalmist pray, is there a wayward thought? Is there a, is there a, a, a disconnect between me and God that, that needs to be restored? And I need to repent of that. So turn back to Him. Seek His forgiveness, and He will lavish His grace on you. And then come and enjoy fellowship with us through coming to the table this morning. James Boyce said this, at the heart of the present significance of the Lord's Supper is our communion or fellowship with Christ. Hence the term communion service. In coming to this service, the believer comes to meet with Christ and have fellowship with Him at His invitation. I think that's so neat. He invites us. As we see, He invited the disciples to join Him in the active work. He invites us to the table. He says, come, feast with me and remind yourself of the cost Remind, my, remind yourself of the life that I'm laying down for you. He goes on to say, The examination, or, or sorry, let me go back. He says, In coming to this service, the believer comes to meet with Christ and have fellowship with Him at His invitation. The examination takes place because it would be hypocrisy for us to pretend that we are in communion with the Holy One while actually cherishing known sin in our hearts. And that's what I want to encourage you to do. Listen, cherish those sins, hate those sins. Turn from sin and go to the Lord. And the beauty is not that he's sitting there wanting to pound you. No, he is sitting there with open arms ready to hug you and embrace you and invite you to the table to join him in the celebration and memorial of his suffering for us.